Okay, last week we were reading in Matthew chapter 14 about Jesus feeding the 5,000 men plus women and children in Matthew chapter 14. And it says in verse 20, Matthew chapter 14, verse 20, And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate, besides women and children. There were twelve baskets full. There were twelve disciples that had served the food, and there were twelve baskets full left over. The disciples had learned to depend on the Lord and to give that day, and they themselves had plenty of food for themselves left over as well. Each one of them had a full basketful. Each one of them was taken care of. When we learn to give out, we really learn to receive. If we wake up in the morning and it and, and, and we expect to receive a lot that day, it's going to be a difficult day. But if we wake up in the morning and expect to give and say, let me try to give, we're going to receive much that day. It's in giving that we receive. It's in giving that we receive. You know, the person who has everything, who has all sorts of money and all sorts of toys and trinkets and, and notoriety, it is often those people who spend a lot of time in the psychologist's office, in the psychiatrist's office, saying, I feel empty. When am I going to receive something? And then you look at people like Mother Teresa who are always giving up their lives and never spend time at the psychiatrist's office saying, when am I going to get something back? Because she felt so filled. It is in giving that we receive. Turn to uh, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This whole idea of giving and then receiving as we give. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And there's different types of giving. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the context of the giving is giving of money. And I'm not here to take up an offering, and I'm glad I don't. But this whole idea of learning how to give the things that are important to us. Look in verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Now I say, now, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good do- deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be enriched in everything for all liberality. Through which, through which us is producing thanksgiving to God. So you see what he says. He says, 
I want you to learn to give. And just remember, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. If you give a little in your life, you will receive a little. If you give a lot, you will receive a lot. The same principles are in Luke chapter 6, but in that context, it's not in the context of money. It's in the context of showing mercy. If you show mercy, you will receive mercy back. If you sparing with mercy and you show judgment, you will receive judgment back. In fact, in Luke chapter 6, it says the principle here is that if you sow a little bit, whatever you sow, you will get much back. In other words, sowing is like a seed. You plant one kernel of corn and you get 10,000 kernels of corn. If you sow a little bit of mercy, you'll get a lot of mercy back. If you sow a little bit of judgment, you'll get a lot of judgment back. So go ahead and judge somebody and you watch. It won't be very long before people start judging you and you say, why is the world always dumping on me? People are always judging me. Just remember, a little bit of judgment and we sow a lot back. The whole principle of sowing and reaping. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the whole context is giving money. He says, if you learn to sow, you shall reap. And then he says, in verse 11, you will be rich, enriched in everything for all liberality. When you learn to sow, you receive back many times over. And a lot, many times over, you receive back. That is the principle of sowing and reaping. You receive it back. If you learn in verse 9, He who scattered abroad, he gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. There is an everlasting righteousness that endures to have a heart of giving. The disciples first gave to the other people, and then they received their twelve baskets full. The principle is, when you have guests, you allow them to eat first. This is what you do. You allow the other to go first. This is the principle that God gives us. As we learn to give, we receive. As we learn to yield to another, we are enriched all the more. The thing is, becomes more pleasant for us and also for our entire lives. Look in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. You've got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. General Electric Power Company. Philippians chapter 4, verse 15. Philippians 4, verse 15. You yourselves, Philippians, you, you, you yourselves also, Philippians, know that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. For I have received everything in full and have an abundance and am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So look at what he says. He says, you yourselves, Philippians, he's writing to the church of Philippi. He's saying that at the first preaching of the gospel, 
uh, uh, no church shared with me the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. In other words, you alone stood with me in this whole matter of giving and receiving. You sent gifts to me. Even when I was no longer in your church, you were sending gifts to me. He says, when I was in Thessalonica, you sent a gift to me more than once for my needs. You sent it to me. You gave me those gifts. And then, interestingly, what he says in verse 18, he says, I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. In other words, he says, it's enough. You've sent to me enough. He says, you've given me all that I need. You know, I really find that amazing. You don't hear that much these days. You don't hear preachers saying very much, No, I have enough. Stop giving. You've given enough. Paul said that. Paul said that to the Philippians. He said, You've given so much, you've given enough. Stop sending so much. You know, my wife does this. She'll bless people with food so much, they say, Stop. We can't fit any more in our refrigerator. My pockets are full. My hands are full enough. You know, that's just the way she is. And that's what the church at Philippi did. But look what he says in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. I know that in your giving, you will receive back many times over into your life. See, in verse 19, he says, My God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory. In other words, you sent me money. My God is going to supply all of your need. Just because we give money doesn't mean that we're going to receive all sorts of money back. We will receive gifts according to our need from God in return. And there are things that are worth so much more than money. I would much rather receive back from my giving blessing upon my family, peace in my household, grace toward my children. And this is what I receive when I give. So when the church comes to college students and says, we'd really love for you to participate in the building program, they well understand that your $5 is not going to build very much. It's not going to do a whole lot in the remodeling of this facility. Your $5 really isn't. It's not like, oh yeah, the church really is, they really want my $5. I mean, that's all I've got. But they want what is going to profit to your account. He says, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which will increase to your account. When you learn at this stage in your life to give, you receive much blessing back in your life. And you think, oh, well, when I have a lot, then I'll give. The richer you are, the harder it is to give. The wealthier you are, the harder it is to give. And you say, how can that be? Because remember, the Bible says you do not give out of your surplus, you give out of your sustenance. You give out of the, the very thing that sustains you. That is the level at which you should be giving. And so when you're very wealthy, in order to give so much that it starts tapping into your, your lifestyle, it turns out to be a big number. And very few people are willing to give that much money when they're wealthy. Very few. And you think it's easier. It is not. The more you make, the harder it is. And that's why you start at this stage. 
start with a tent. That in the Bible is the place to start. You say, well, what is a tent? If you have a dollar, you give a dime. If you have ten dollars, you give a dollar. That is a tent. That's what you give. And that is where you start. And then beyond that is an offering. And it's good to give an offering. And that's fine. But what I seek is the profit that will come to your account. When you learn to be generous, you know what will happen? God will bring a generous spouse in your life. It is a terrible thing to be married to a stingy person. And when you learn to give, you become a better spouse. Because people who are generous in giving money are generally generous in giving of other things, of their time, of attention, of resources. Good givers are generally good spouses. They're generally good parents because they give of themselves to their children. When you learn to give, you will be around other people who also give and you'll end up finding a spouse among those sort of people rather than a stingy person, which is a difficult thing to live with. A stingy person. It is the profit that will come to your account when you learn to give. He said, you serve these 15,000 people. And then after that's all done, you worry about yourself. And there were 12 baskets full, enough for each one of them. You learn to give out of what you have to another, and you will receive back. Look in 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. So, if you can find Hebrews, after Hebrews, you, you'll find... A bit after Hebrews, you'll find 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. And as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good servants of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength with which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. You see, he says, to each one who receives a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good servants of the manifold grace of God. So it's not just in money. It is in service. It is good to learn to serve in the church. I think everybody should have some level of ministry where you're giving something out, giving something of your life, giving something of your time in service, and you will receive back. Many people will say, you know, what's the church ever done for me? I'll tell you, the church has done a ton for me. And the more I give to the church, the more I receive. All of my children know how to sing. They didn't learn that from me. They learned it in the church. My children have learned all sorts of skills and tasks and, and, and abilities in the church. They've learned from other people. When my girls were growing up and they needed someone to talk to, other than, than me, because I don't allow anyone to talk, I just talk. And they needed someone to listen to them. There were women in the church who befriended my daughters 
and became good friends to them. Because sometimes a teenager needs someone beyond their parents to talk to. And I well realize that. And I'm not put off by that. That's just the way things are. And there were women there in the church for my daughters when they were going through adolescence to talk to. There were men there. There were coaches there among the church members that taught my son certain things. My, My son Ben loves to do performing arts. He didn't learn that from me. He learned this in the church and he loves it. What the church has placed in my life is so much. When I go through pain, when we've gone through suffering, when we've had loss in our lives, the church was there for us. And the church will be there when I need to be buried. The church will be there for me. And it won't be a foreigner that performs the funeral service. It will be people that I know. As we learn to give, we receive. People say, well, what am I going to get out of this? You will get out of it exactly what you give. If you give nothing, you'll get nothing. As you learn to serve in the body of Christ, well, I don't know my area of service. Well, start getting involved. You can sing in the choir. You can work with kids. Learn to work with middle schoolers. Middle schoolers think that college students are like the ultimate. I mean, you guys really have it together in their mind. That you could have finished high school and somehow gotten into college with all the paperwork that's involved, you got into college. That's amazing. To them, you are amazing. Get involved in working with middle school students and you will be blessed. Get involved in some way. Serve on campus, in Campus Crusade, in InterVarsity, in Baptist Student Ministry. Serving means something different than just attending the meetings. Well, I attend the meetings. Well, I'm not impressed. You should be up front there doing something. Well, I'm not an up front sort of person. Well, set up the equipment and take it down after everybody leaves. Clean up the place after everybody leaves. You're not an up front person, then work behind the scenes. God has a gifting for you. He says, each one who has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good servants of the manifold grace of God. God has given you grace. He's given you a back. He's given you eyes. He's given you hands. Use it for His service. And you know what will happen? You'll get a better spouse. Somebody will see you serving and they'll want to marry you. That happened. I saw Shireen doing dishes. One day I saw her doing dishes and I went in there and I told her, it it was in the house where I was living with with a bunch of other Christian guys. Her family had come over to eat uh, uh, that Sunday afternoon. What happened was we they thought, her family thought that we were going to have a church meal together and everybody was supposed to bring some dishes and her family brought all this food and they had the date wrong so we were a bunch of christian guys living in a in a house together and we saw all this food and we said you can come to our house so after church they came to our house and we ate their food and i went to the kitchen to start doing the dishes because that was my job in the house that summer and shireen was doing the dishes and i walked in there i saw her doing the dishes and i said you can go now this is my job and she said I like doing the dishes. And my heart just about leapt out of my chest and started pounding. I'm just telling you, it's true. Do you ever have that? Did anybody here ever have that happen to them where they were just so enamored with a person that that, that their heart started pounding? Am I the only one? Has it happened to you? Anybody? 
It's happened to you. Okay, there we go. There we go. Some guys are confessing this. And for all of you that didn't confess it, shame on you for being so chicken. I mean, this, and so this, my chest just started pounding. It was like, like Popeye, you know, when he saw olive oil, his heart would come out to here. This is what happened. And look, you know, I, I ended up marrying her. She gets to do all the dishes she wants now. <laughs> Somebody will see you serving. And you'll be blessed. You will be blessed. And you will receive back many times over if you learn to give. That is the principle of sowing and reaping. Let's turn back to Matthew chapter 14, reading now from verse 22. Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Now I want you to remember from last week the context of this. The disciples had been out ministering. During this time that they had been out ministering, Jesus finds out that John the Baptist had been beheaded. Jesus is grieving in his heart. He calls the disciples together when they get back from being out all day ministering. They hadn't even had time to eat. And then they get in a boat. They go to the other side of the lake, to some other place on the lake, and the crowds meet them there. The disciples say, send them away, you know, let them go into the towns and eat. We're tired. And Jesus said, you feed them. So then Jesus multiplies all this food. They feed thousands and thousands and thousands of people, 5,000 men, plus women, plus children. And so they're tired. They finally eat. And you know when you're really exhausted and you finally eat, then you're even more tired. You really got to rest. And Jesus said, get in the boat and go to the other side of the lake. Just, I'm going to go up on this mountain and pray. Jesus, in order to be strengthened, would go and get alone and pray. That is what he did. Jesus would pray. It says in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, While it was still dark, Jesus would go to a lonely place, and he was praying there. That was Jesus' practice. He would rise up and he would pray. Jesus went up to this mountain and he prayed. And he didn't just pray in the morning. He went up to the mountain and he prayed in the evening. If evening is your better time, then do it. And he would go and he was there alone and he was praying. This is how Jesus received strength. This is how Jesus dealt with all of the things that were coming at him in life. He would go to pray. I once heard a speaker from India say, Americans are extremely literate people. They can read a lot. They read all sorts of books and stuff. Extremely literate people, but they don't know how to pray. And I think in my life, I have to testify that that's true. Will we come alone? Will we go apart? And will we pray? Will we spend time alone with God and pray? Is that what we will do? That is what Jesus did. That is the way He dealt with these things. He got alone and He would pray. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Okay, so he had sent them out in this boat to go to the other side of the lake. It says that 
he made the disciples, in verse 22, get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. And then it says, in verse 24, but the boat was already a long distance from land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, wait a minute. Why are the winds contrary? Didn't Jesus himself tell them to do that? Didn't Jesus himself send them across that lake? I thought when Jesus sends us somewhere and Jesus directs us, everything's going to be smooth. Nothing will ever come against me. If Jesus has sent me, it's just going to be smooth sailing. In fact, we'll have a, we'll have a tailwind. We'll just, you know, throw up a little sail here and we're just going to go riding right across this lake because Jesus himself sent us. I mean, you can obey Jesus, but you can have a terrible time afterward. Things don't necessarily always go smoothly. They don't for us, and they don't for Jesus. I've even heard believers say, ever since I became a Christian, so much has gone wrong in my life. Well, the Bible never said everything was going to go right. Look in, in, uh, in Mark chapter 6. Mark reports the same incident in Mark chapter 6. Verse 45, Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. Isn't that interesting? Jesus sent them. Immediately, it says, he, he, he made them get in the boat. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. After bidding them farewell... What does your Bible, what does this new, new International Version say? After bidding them farewell, what's your Bible say? Yeah, verse 46. Uh-huh. It doesn't say after bidding them farewell? All right, mine says after bidding them farewell. Farewell means pleasant trip. <laughs> They had no idea what they were about to get into. Remember, lots of these guys, not all of them, but a lot of them were professional fishermen. And I don't know about you, but when I'm on the water and there's a professional guy there, I feel a whole lot better. Just like when I'm in an airplane. <laughs> you know, if there's somebody who really knows how to fly, I feel much better. And the more experience they have, the better I feel. And when it was evening, the boat was in the, in verse 47, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, it was about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and he intended to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So look back up in verse, in, in verse uh, uh, 48. They were straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. So exactly the opposite way that Jesus had sent them, the wind was coming from the direction in which he was sending them. Just because you walk with Jesus doesn't mean life is going to be easy. 
doesn't mean that you're not going to go through troubles. And they're straining at the oars. I mean, they couldn't have been better commanded to go. And they have to strain at the oars. I thought if Jesus sent me, everything's going to go easy. And I see this all the time from missionaries. Missionaries get in this, their mind, you know, they're going to be, you know, just this glorious mission field. And they get over there, and from the moment they're there, things start going, having trouble. And it's rough, and it's difficult. And after a few months, they're like, I think I made a mistake. I think I must have heard Jesus wrongly. No, you didn't hear him wrong at all. The mission field isn't easy. It's not always going to be easy. You're not always going to be with all your friends on the mission field and getting together and having prayer meetings every night and having all people get saved and and the government's just bowing down to you and saying, oh, thank you for coming here and saving our people. They were straining at the oars. And it says in, in verse 48, and he intended to pass by them. So his intent wasn't even necessarily to help them. He was just walking on the water. Why should he get in the boat and strain? It's much easier for him to just walk across the water. Turn back to Matthew chapter 14. Verse 24. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, and the wind was contrary. And the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When his disciples saw him walking on the sea... They were terrified, and they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but, he, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. So you've got to get this picture. Here, they're battered by the waves, the wind is totally against them, just trying to obey the Lord, and they see this figure, and it's nighttime, walking across the sea. There is no way that they could have imagined that this would be Jesus. I mean, they figured it's a ghost. If you or I were out on a boat in the middle of a lake and somebody comes walking across, you're going to think it's a ghost. You really are. I mean, what are you going to think? Have you ever seen anybody walk across a lake before? Remember, we moved to Wisconsin and I used to ride my bicycle to, to, to the university. And uh, one day I was riding and it was cold out. And I saw somebody running across the lake. The lake had frozen over, and somebody was running across the lake. And I had never, I was, you know, I stopped the bike. What is that? Not realizing that the lake had now frozen. Anyway, this wasn't a frozen lake. Maybe that's why the Bible says there was a boat being battered by the waves. Lest, you know, you, you know some skeptic would say, you know, there must have been a cold spell there in Israel, and the lake froze over. That's how Jesus walked on the water. You know, they'll always explain something away. So Jesus comes walking on the water, and there's this figure come walking. So they got scared. I mean, this is natural, just to get scared. And they thought it was a ghost. I mean, that's a pretty good assumption. What else is it? And they cried out in fear. And immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. He said, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. But they're still not quite sure. In verse 28, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to 
come to you on the water. And he said, come. Look at that. Peter didn't say, Jesus, can I get out of the water and walk on the water like you're doing? Jesus, he, Peter said, command me to come to you on the water. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Came toward Jesus. Now if we just stop there, this is great. And then, and then when we read on, it says immediately Jesus, in verse 30, But seeing the wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when he got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Peter was the only one that got out of the boat. And everybody dumps on Peter for having little faith. I mean, Peter was absolutely amazing. Can you imagine? Peter knew a lot about water. The waves are battering the boat. The winds are contrary. You don't get out into the open sea like that without drowning. You can't walk on water. But Peter says, you know, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter gets out and he steps on top of the water and it says he starts walking toward Jesus. This man had absolutely amazing faith. Far more faith than any one of them. The little bit that he walked, we don't know how far it was. Because Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you. In other words, they still weren't sure because Jesus said, it is I. Do not be afraid. But he was still far enough away from them. Remember, he wasn't intending to get into the boat. He was just intending to get to the other side. He was far enough away from them that they couldn't see him clearly because they thought he was a ghost. It was dark enough that they thought he was a ghost, so they couldn't see clearly. And he said, it is I, do not be afraid. He didn't say, hey, it's me, Jesus. He just said, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter said, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. If it is you. So in other words, he, said, he, he says, uh, um, Lord, if it is you. So he said, if you're really Jesus. In other words, he couldn't see him quite that well. He was far enough away. That's how far it was. And he gets out of the boat and he starts walking. It is much better to have gotten out of the boat and walked a little bit and started to sink than never gotten out of the boat at all. Much better. The vast majority of believers never get out of the boat. The vast majority of believers never do anything to step out for God. And if you want to see the glory of God in your life, if I want to see that in my life, there are things that I need to do that are dangerous, that are not always comfortable, that are different than what other people are going to do. This is what God calls us to. What do you want to do? You want to look back on your life and think, I never got out of the boat. I just went to church every Sunday. I was pretty comfortable. Or, I can't believe what I did that day. That was really amazing. And reflect back. 
You know, when I put ads in the paper about Jesus, I will sometimes have colleagues who are Christians say, you know, I didn't like that ad, you did this wrong, you said this wrong, you know, you, you, you could have done this better. And these guys do nothing. And I say to them, you know, I like the way that I do it wrong better than the way that you don't do it at all. And this is exactly what Peter could have said. I like the way that I got out of the boat and walked a little bit and sunk better than the way that you didn't get out of the boat at all. God calls us to something much more exciting in life than just sitting in the boat and being battered around. Peter at least tried something really awesome. And Jesus said to him, you know, he saw these waves and everything, he took his eyes off Jesus and he began to sink. And he says, Jesus, save me. And Jesus comes, stretches out his hand, pulls him out. And he says, you have little faith, why did you doubt? And we focus in on this guy of little faith. Well, how about the other 11 guys in the boat with zero faith? Peter had a little faith, and he walked on water. The others had no faith. I really think that instead of dumping on Peter, the other 11, when he got back in the boat, were really impressed with Peter. Because he walked some distance on the water. Something that no one other than Jesus had ever done before. Jesus has other things for us in life that are more exciting than just getting a career and just going to church on Sundays. There are other things if we will only yield to Him. It's not the enemy that holds me back. Jesus has has defeated Him. It's my own faith. My own lack of faith. Will I believe God to do something great with my life? Will I believe God to do something great with my career? Great with the interactions that I have with people? Will I believe God to do something great in the lives of my children? Or will I just disbelieve and think, oh, well, you know, this is the status quo. It's hard being battered by these waves. But this is what I've got to do. This is the lot that God has for me. I think I'll just row contrary to these winds. God has so much more for us in our lives. And this is what he calls us to. What Peter did was so much greater than what any of the others had done. And when he got back into the boat, the wind stopped. And they worship him as the Son of God. And this term, the Son of God, very much is synonymous with being God himself. That is how the Jews understood this. Being the Son of God was synonymous with God himself. Verse 34, And when they crossed over they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into the surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were cured. You know what this city is? This is the city where the Gadarean demoniac had been healed by Jesus. Remember the man came... And he used to live in the tombs and he was beating himself with stones. We had seen that. And Jesus had cast out of him a legion of many demons. And the man wanted then to travel with Jesus. But the man was a Gentile. And he says, no, you're not going to travel with me. He said, go back and you tell your friends all about this. And I will, I will, uh, Luke chapter 8. Verse 
26. And they sailed and they came to the area of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when they came into the land, uh, they came out onto the land and he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. And now we're in Luke chapter 8, verse 28. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and he fell before him. And he said in a loud voice, what business, do I have with each, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would break these bonds and would be driven out by the demons into the desert. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for we are... And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they were imploring him not to command them out to go into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine there on the mountains. And the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. And he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. And when the herdsmen saw what had happened... They ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. And the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. And those who had seen it reported it to how how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave. For they were gripped with fear, and he got into the boat and returned. Okay, so the last time he was there, Jesus healed a demon-possessed man. The crowd sought among these Gentiles, and they said, get out of here. We can't handle this. And in verse 38, But the man from whom the demon had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. This man was a Gentile. He was not under the policy of silence that we had discussed earlier. And so Jesus sent him back. Because he went back and shared the gospel in that place, Jesus comes to that same city. The people recognize him. The man's gospel message had worked. And they started coming to Jesus. And Jesus touched them and healed them you actually get a snapshot here of the ministry of this former demon-possessed man who had shared with the people there and then was the, the whole community from having turned Jesus away received Jesus back and said, come. And they invited Him in. Very different response after the sharing had come. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank You for the truth of Your Word. And Father, I pray for these young people in the name of Jesus that You would teach them to be generous. Generous with their money at this stage in their lives. Generous with their time that they would learn how to serve. Father, I pray that they would be generous people. That they would come under the blessing of sowing and reaping. Sowing good and reaping in abundance with their money, with their time, with their service. 
and you would so bless their families richly in return. Father, I pray that you would teach us to be people of faith that would learn to step out of the boat, that would learn to do something different and something that causes us to step beyond ourselves. Father, I pray for these young people that you would lead them into places of ministry that they would pick up that are difficult for them. Yet through that, you would cause them to grow. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd constantly cause them to be speaking of your word. And Father, if there's someone here that doesn't know you, Father, open up their heart and their lives. Father, have mercy on their souls. And just as that demon-possessed man was delivered, Father, I pray that you would deliver them. And you would put a testimony on their hearts that would so impact others. Save the lost here, I pray. And Father, I lift up to you 